0: everyone, and welcome to another episode of Bible Ask Live, where we answer your Bible questions live here on our weekly show. My name is Tina with my friends Jay and Wendy. Jay is out of there, right now, but he's coming soon, right, Wendy?
1: Yes, he will be here shortly.
0: All right, wonderful. I know everybody, um, hold your horses. I know you all want to you'll have to enjoy us for a few minutes um so if this is your first time joining us we want to welcome you all thank you so much for joining us tonight um and if you again if this is your first time we want to welcome you and let you know this is a live show so that if you have questions or comments or any thoughts you want to share live here on our weekly show be sure to put them down in the comment section below we love interacting with our audience and just kind of getting to know you knowing what you think knowing um you know, just what your opinion is on, on, you know, what we're talking about and the answers we're giving. And, you know, sometimes when we're uh, answering these questions, other questions come up. So we love answering Bible questions on the fly. So please be sure to put your questions, comments, thoughts down below in the comment section. We would love to hear from your audience out there. And, um, you know, we just want to let you know that if you would like your question, you have a Bible question, a sincere one, you would like it featured on our weekly show. Be sure to go to our website, BibleAsk.org forward slash live, and that's how you can get your Bible question featured on our show. So, we are so excited because you have some really, really great questions. Um, but before we go, uh, dive into those, we always want to start with a word of prayer because obviously, you know, this is Bible Ask. So we have the Bible, but we need to ask God for his spirit to guide us uh, in answering these questions. So Wendy, would you mind praying for us as we begin?
1: Absolutely. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this coming Sabbath, our ready Sabbath for some some people. And we we just pray you'll be with us this evening as we answer these questions and um, help each person to know you a little bit more through these questions and the responses to them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
0: Amen. Thank you so much for that, my friend. Well, Wendy, what is our first question?
1: Let's go ahead and get that question up. All right. So Johnny is asking, Joshua 14, 12, who are the Anakim?
0: Well, my friend, Johnny, that is a fantastic question. And I actually really enjoyed finding um, the answer to this. So if you want to go with me, kind of go back in time as far as the context of kind of what's going on here. So actually, just to get some reference up for anybody who's wondering, it sounds like you're reading um, the book of, excuse me, Joshua. And so in order to understand Joshua, we kind of need to understand what was going on before um, Joshua took role as leader. So if you go back about 40 years, that's the context of what's happening, Um, so actually I'm just wondering, okay, let's first start with Joshua 14, 12, just to get a little bit of context there, and then we'll go back, um, a book and then we'll kind of get your answer there. So if you go to the book of Joshua chapter 14, this is a really interesting story. So basically, um, Joshua and Caleb are talking here. And if you remember these two, they were two of the 12 spies from back when, Um, Israel was supposed to take Canaan. And so um, what happened was, you know, they were supposed to go out and get, uh, you know, the land of Canaan, but people were too scared. But Caleb and Joshua were brave and they were saying, let's go out and get this land. God will be with us. God has given it to us. Let's go. But because of Israel's faithlessness, um, the nation wandered for 40 years. However, after that, those forty years, Joshua became the next leader after Moses, and Caleb was still around as well. And so, what you see here in Joshua chapter fourteen, verse twelve, is basically a conversation between Joshua and Caleb at this point. And so, um, basically, when you um, look at the beginning of Joshua chapter fourteen. Um, it's talking about you know what's what's kind of going on that you know there was um, these tribes and um, how they were dividing the land and how you know every tribe of of Israel or Judah or excuse me, tribe of Israel was getting a portion of land. Well, Caleb asks for a specific um, inheritance, and so you see that in the first up in uh, um, Joshua twelve verse thirteen it says and Joshua blessed him and and so. The context of Joshua 14, 12 is that, you know, he says, now, therefore, give me this mountain. So basically, Caleb gives this speech about, you know, I've been here since the beginning, Um, like in verse 10, he says, and now behold, the Lord has kept me alive. As he said, these 40 and five years, even since the Lord spake this word to Moses, while the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness. And now I am this day fourscore five years old. He's 85 years old. He says in verse 11, "As yet I am as strong this day as I was the day that Moses sent me." So Caleb is saying, "Hey, it's been 45 years since I was a tro- you know a spy with you, <laughs> Joshua," and he's saying, "But I'm just as strong today as I was then, and I'm he's just as eager now to receive the land and the promise that God has promised to him and his people." And so in verse 12, this is basically says, now, therefore, give me this mountain. He's asking for a specific land of a mountain, which um, we see, you know, becomes his. And, um, And it says, wherefore, the Lord spake this day, for thou hast heard in the day that how the Anakims were there and the cities were great and fenced. If so, be the Lord will be with me, then I shall be able to drive them out as the Lord said. So Caleb was like, look, it's been 45 years. I've been waiting. I'm ready. I'm still able to, ready and willing to do the will of the Lord and get this promised land. And so that's kind of the context of what's going on. So who are the Anakins then? they, These people that were there, and they were there 40 plus years ago. Um, If you go to Deuteronomy chapter one and verse 28, it talks about basically the context of this. Um, And I'm sorry, I'm having a little issue with my computer today. Uh, So bear with me one second. I don't know why my mouse wants to do things that I'm not telling it to do, so I apologize. So Deuteronomy chapter one, Deuteronomy, and I apologize, guys. Like I said, we're having some technical issues today. All right, I'm just going to talk, <laughs> say to you, Deuteronomy chapter one, verse twenty-eight, um, is basically the context of when the twelve spies went out, um, and people were afraid, but um, because they saw giants. Now, Deuteronomy chapter two, verse twelve is where we see Joshua destroys most of them. And so um, these Anakims, these were people that were not just giants. They were like the giant of the giants. So um, there's several places where the Bible talks about them and um, basically how they were a special breed of giant. Now, not only were they giants, they were not uh, God-friend people. They were, you know, heathen, they were idol worshipers. Um, and so here we see um, God basically saying, yes, you're going to be able to drive them out because these are not holy people. They are doing wicked things. And so um, basically here we see, um, you know, their first mention when Jane- Joshua and Caleb were being sent out in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 28. Um, They said, Whither shall we go up? Our brethren have discouraged our hearts, saying, The people is greater and taller than we. The cities are great and walled up to heaven. And moreover, we have seen the sons of Anakims, of the Anakims there. So basically, the Anakims were like the super giants back then. You know, like we talk about the Philistines and Goliath being a giant. And I think these Anakims would have basically been even taller than the giant uh, Goliath. So these were like the super giants of these days. And again, if you look in the next chapter, Deuteronomy chapter two, verse 11, it gives you a little bit more clarity as far as um, these people. uh, Where he says, which also were accounted giants as the Anakin. So basically he's talking about other people, like other tribes and other people that were tall. Like in verse 10 of Deuteronomy two, it says the Emims, dwelt there in times past, a people great and many and tall as the Anakin's. So as a standard of like being a super giant, the Anakin tribe was just up there. It was just like the top of these tall, tall, (laughs) giant people. And yet God was saying, you know, go and say, you know, kick them out because I am giving this land to you, even though it's scary, even though it seems like you can't, you're you're no match for these giants. God is saying, I'm with you. So um, we see though in the book of Joshua, you know, the chapter prior to this in Joshua chapter 11 verses 21 and 22, that Joshua basically had destroyed most of this tribe when Israel finally got into the promised land and when you know, those doubtful people had finally passed away. Caleb and Joshua and all these people that were ready to receive the land did so. And they were able to to wipe out most of this tribe, uh, like we just mentioned in Joshua 11, 21 and 22. So um, I hope that answers your questions. Yes, the Anakims were um, giants, and yet they were no match for God's people when they were actually you know, fulfill filled with the Holy Spirit and willing to go forward and um, receive the promise that God had for them. So again, if you have any other questions, be sure to uh, put them down in the comments below. We would love to answer them even further. Uh, Wendy is, are you there or, is, or has Jay joined us yet? Hello. Hello.
1: We are both
0: here now. Yay. Yes. All right. Well, Jay or Wendy, any other thoughts on that one?
2: no that's that's always a tricky question to answer, but I totally agree. They were just giant race of people.
0: yeah, yeah nothing nothing more, nothing less.
2: It's Occam's razor, and I think a lot of people want to at times like ignore that and they want to create these elaborate theories and they sound fun. We like lore, right? We love stories, but reality sometimes is far simpler than uh, what we sometimes want it to be.
0: Yeah, no, that's for sure,
1: definitely. Yep. All right, all right. Well, so we have a first. Of all, I want to say hello to Robert. Thanks for joining us again. And if anyone else is hiding out there, tuning into us, feel free to say hi in the chat in the comments. Let us know you're here, and we always love to interact with you. Are uh, do you want to answer Robert's question, or should we start with the next one? The and then you can come back to this.
2: Uh, you can probably answer it quickly.
1: Okay. So we'll bring Robert's question up here. So Robert is asking, can you explain Leviticus 23, 1 to 3? Is this referring to the weekly Sabbath? Does it mean the feast is part of the Sabbath?
0: All right.
2: Uh, and let's, uh, let's pull up that verse yeah. starting at Leviticus 23, verse 1. And uh, by way, hi, EVR. Thanks for joining us.
1: Okay, so Leviticus 23, one says, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be my holy convocations. These are my feasts. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings.
2: And then if we go to the next verse, Leviticus 23, 4 says, These are the feasts of the Lord, even holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. Uh, And then it proceeds to list uh, the different convocations like Passover, uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and uh, the other ones. I don't. I tend to tell me if I'm wrong here. I don't believe this verse is saying that the weekly Sabbath is a feast. Mm-hmm. It's it's combining the Sabbath mm-hmm. with the feast days. Mm-hmm. They are all different types of Sabbaths, but yeah, the Sabbath wasn't the feast. It, it's mm-hmm. combining them, or God is sort of saying like, there's the feast, and then there's the Sabbath.
0: Yeah, that's what I understand, too, because I remember reading this in Leviticus and being like a little bit confused in a way because I'm like, wait, is this its own thing or is this something different? And it's, yeah, it's a little bit tricky. And what I think, the, I think why it was written this way, like the beginning of this chapter, he's saying, you know, this is the seventh day, this is the Sabbath, and then he goes into the rest of it because he's like, okay, first and foremost, like there's going to be a lot of feasts and Sabbaths and, and other things. There There are other Sabbaths in, you know, the Mosaic law, you know, in, in the Old Testament, um, you know, sanctuary services and, and holidays and things like that. There were other Sabbaths outside of the seventh day Sabbath written as the fourth commandment by the finger of God set up at creation. That's a different thing. So what I think God was establishing was just like, say, is, you know, every week you have a weekly Sabbath like that. That is the Sabbath because it from what it sounded like also in um, the book of Exodus, was that the people had not been keeping the Sabbath. So that wasn't really part of their lifestyle. God was reteaching them how to keep the Sabbath. And so, um, you know, he said, you know, first and foremost, Sabbath, like every week is the Sabbath day, like the seventh day Sabbath that I set up at creation and I wrote it on stone for you guys to keep as, you know, part of my 10 commandments. Um, That's first and foremost. And then in addition to that, now there's all these other Sabbaths and feasts, and you know, um, holidays, and and holy days, and new moons, and all these things, and those were things that were written as part of you know the ceremonies. That's a ceremonial law, is what they call it, and that's what you would say was writ- uh, nailed to the cross because it was written on paper. However, which is different than obviously God's Sabbath that He set forth. You know, He wrote in stone, and so exactly. I am the Lord; I change not. So yeah.
2: So, so, yeah, he's giving context. So I'm going to tell you about my feasts, which are holy convocations. Let me tell you about first the first holy convocation I made, which is the Sabbath. And then, by the way, convocation means, you know, we're coming together, we're gathering, okay. we're assembling. So, you know, that's supposed to be a part of the Sabbath experience. And then God transitions in verse—and and notice that feast isn't mentioned in verse uh, 3 at all. Then we go to Leviticus 23, verse 4— Now, this is when God says, these are the feasts of the Lord. And then Mm -hmm. that's when we list the Passover and things like that. So, uh, yeah, you know, it's a very rational question. I suppose there could be some debate there. But for us, the the textual um, reading here that we believe is most true is that, no, the Sabbath is different. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, the seventh day Sabbath. Mm
2: -hmm. So uh, we have Nancy joining us. Want to say hi to you, Nancy. Thank you so much.
1: Yes, great to have you. She's new
0: here. Well, we're so glad you're enjoying the conversation. I went tonight and saw my only son. Oh, wonderful. Well, blessings
1: to you and your son. All right, shall we get our next question up? So Greg is asking, I am currently researching some words that are defined a little different in some of the newer versions. But as I was doing this, I looked at the 1599 Geneva Bible in Isaiah 13:21, and it, it included the word limb as an animal. I cannot find any information on this. Maybe you won't either, but I am asking the question, do you know what a limb is?
2: So I want to give a little bit of context on this, which we've read previously answered this question. And we read it the same way Wendy did just now, which was he was asking about limb. L-I-M. But then we had a, fa- a sorry a YouTube video uh, viewer tell us and point out that he may have been talking about E-Y-M. I-I-M. And sure enough, we we dug in, and there's no mention of E M in, in Isaiah 13, verse 21. Uh, there's mention there a zijim, which uh, some people might believe is like a a wild beast or foul or wicked spirit. Uh, But if we go to verse 22, so let's look at Isaiah verse 13, sorry, Isaiah 13, verse 21, sorry, verse 22, it reads, the hyenas will howl in their citadels and the jackals in their pleasant places. That word, therefore, hyena, that is the Hebrew word em. So that is the em i i m. And as we can see, the New King James Version translates it hyena. Other versions might translate it something totally different. Like the King James Version says, wild beasts of the islands. And one reason for that might be because the word island is also em i y i m. Uh, If we transliterate it, uh, the word E or just the letter I would be island in Hebrew. Again, the letter I is not a Hebrew letter, but that's what we would use for the equivalent sound. And uh, that word EM referring to the jackal, hyena, whatever shows up in three, three verses actually shows up. Isaiah 34, um, 14, and then also Jeremiah 50, verse 39. And New King James Version for all of these translates it jackal, but as I mentioned, KJV does wild beast of the island. Jeremiah, Jeremiah goes with hyena. Sorry, not Jeremiah. The NIV goes with hyena. Uh, the HNV goes with wolves. And interesting, Young's literal translation just sticks with uh, the zim with the limb. <laughs> the, sorry, with the em, just goes with the em. So uh, very interesting stuff. Nobody knows 100% what it means, but I think modernly everybody seems to be settling around hyena and jackal. So thank you, our Facebook uh, visitor, I believe uh, believe maybe actually Erin, we have her name. Erin, thank you for pointing that out.
1: Anything, Tina, to add? No, I think that was really well done. All right. Yeah. Let's we'll get our next question up. All right. So Maria is asking: Was the King James version of the Bible written by Freemasons? Well, Maria, thank you for your
0: question. Um, we know that the King James Bible was written by about is it forty fifty authors back in the sixteen hundreds, um, who basically they you know they translated the the Bible from. You know, the original Hebrew, as well as Aramaic and Greek into what we have today, the King James Bible. Now, there's always going to be some kind of conspiracy out there about something to do with <laughs> things. Um, you know, this is a conspiracy. I wouldn't give it too much thought or or concern. Um, this is because the thing is, it was done under the guidance of the people who really knew their Bible, really knew. Um, languages. I mean, these people who translated the Bible, each of them knew something like 14 languages. Um, They were very educated and devout men who just, you know, who really wanted to translate it properly. And, you know, and they did it under the guidance, uh, you know, basically they dedicated this um, translation to the king because they wanted to do a good job. So, I mean, to me, it seems like this was a good work. Um, and whenever people do something good, <laughs> you know, people always have to say, oh, there was this going on or that going on. I would say this is just more of a conspiracy. I wouldn't give it too much concern. And, you know, the, the thing is, too, um, when you look at, you know, God's word in the King James Bible, it is such a beautiful thing. And it's had so many, you know, supernatural um, blessings to it. I I can see why the devil would want to, you know, hurl something like, you know, a a conspiracy like this at it, Um, because whenever, you know, God's doing a work, Satan has to try to counter it with something. And so, you know, when we saw Christ here on the earth, you know, Jesus was going about doing good. And, you know, the Pharisees were accusing him of things and they were always after him to be like, oh, he casts out devils by the power of Beelzebub and things like that. But then, you know, Jesus is like, but by their fruits, you will know them. He's like, look at my fruits, look at my life. Look at what I've done. What is it doing? You know, by my fruits, am I doing anything that's showing you that I've, I work with, you know, evil spirits? No, by no means at all. You know, Jesus was always showing goodness and kindness. And we've only seen, or I mean, at least in my experience with the, you know, the King James Bible, I've only, you know, I've read it cover to cover and I've never seen one error, anything out of line or out of harmony um, you know, with the character of God and His character of love, and so I would think that, you know, this is a conspiracy. I wouldn't give it, you know, half a half a thought <laughs> otherwise, and just know that, you know, God does protect His word, and um, you know, man might try to do things and con- misconstrue things, but I think that God had a special protection over His um, His translation of His of the Bible, and I think we can you know safely trust it. So. Um, and again, this is hearsay as opposed to, you know, the word of God, which is, you know, stands true forever and ever because, you know, these conspiracies, they come and go, but you know, this, our Bible has been around for thousands of years. I mean, yes, it began as just a few books, um, you know, when, when Moses began to start writing things down, um, you know, which was over 2000 years ago and, you know, over the last, you know, several thousand years or sorry, even longer than that. And so, you know, thousands of years we've had basically scripture to read from and it's lasted and there's just nothing that compares to it. So would I worry about somebody's theory to just try to, you know, brush aside God's word? No way. I will stand firm on the Bible and the Bible only. So yeah, J.R. Wendy, any other thoughts on that?
2: Uh, nope. And I have to say, the next question I'll answer answer that was asked ahead of time Well, also, I think, sort of reinforce the history of the Bible and debunk any myths that's really been corrupted and in, in, in the hands of uh, the Masons.
1: Mm-hmm. Shall we dive right into that question since it's related? Yeah. And then come back
2: to some uh, other ones? Sure. Okay. So, yeah, we see questions coming in. Robert, EVR, great questions. We uh, look forward to getting to those.
1: We will tackle those after this next one. All right. So let's get the next question up. So Trevor is asking, when was the Bible reduced to 66 books? Thank you from Trevor in New Zealand.
2: I love the question, Trevor. And I definitely spent quite a bit of time digging the histories to try to figure that out. And the answer, of course, going to be nobody knows for sure. And it's really a is is really convoluted because there's so many different Christian churches throughout a long period of time, so much split on this issue that it's going to be like what what point or what place, what people, and and then from there we would discern, okay, what time? And that's also going to be difficult because we are so far removed, you know, by centuries, and then also now in terms of, you know, like for us, we're in America, a lot of these things would have happened in Europe maybe Asia, that we're really far removed from the history and the people, and when did things get figured out? But I'll give you some high-level history of what we have recorded and what people out there say and some scholars say, and I'll I'll flag uncertainty for sure when I've seen it. It's first important to, to keep in mind we have the Old Testament and the New Testament, and each one has its own history, and and process when people figured out what what is the biblical canon and let's start with the hebrew so for the jews they they around we'll, we'll talk about there's various times but they more or less figured out okay we have 24 books for them the, the, and they call this the tanakh 24 books and they like that number right because that's 2 times 12 so it's very significant to them they're locked into it it has the five books of the torah there's the nevim or neviim which is uh like for example includes samuel kings and the minor prophets but by the way samuel is one book the book of kings is counted as one book there's not first and second kings and then the 12 minor prob- prophets are all smushed into one book. So a lot of the contents we have in our Bible are there, but they're counting them differently. So that adds to the further confusion of, okay, well, how many books are in the Bible? Well, how do you count a book? What's a book? So that's also changed throughout time. Uh, There's also then the Ketuvim, which has 11 books in it, including like the book of Chronicles is in there. Again, it's counted as one book. And Ezra and Nehemiah, they are counted as one single book. So you combine these, this is 24 books. And when did they settle on the Tanakh? When did the, the Hebrews figure that out? So some people say it was all the way back to like second century uh, AD. Maybe it took them that long. So to, around, uh, uh, you know, between 100 and 280. AD. And then there's also, some people say it was at the Council of Jamnia. Uh, around 90 AD, uh, according to the, to the Talmud, there was a great assembly around 450 BC and that settled it. And then we also have some theories and, and, and people say it was Ezra himself that uh, put together the Old Testament canon. And and I can think that would be very, that would make a lot of sense that Ezra was the one who did it because he would, given his background, Interestingly, then Josephus, Philo, and a lot of historians and other people talk about how there was one single copy of the Tanakh that was kept at the Temple of Jerusalem that was sort of held as this is the standard. All copies, everything needs to be compared and measured to this one copy. And of course, that copy now has probably long been destroyed with the destruction of the Temple or just the passage of time. Nobody has that book, but... You know, throughout the centuries, we end up having remnants of old books, the oldest going back to uh, the 7th to the 10th centuries. The, the most complete book actually is from the 11th century AD, and then we have some that go back to 7th and 10th centuries. So these are the oldest Old Testament manuscripts, uh, longer manuscripts that we're really dealing with, and they're from the Masoretic period. So they're called the Masoretic Texts. And of course, with the Dead Sea Scrolls, we're getting a lot more fragments that take us further back in time to like around the time of Jesus and further back that we can then now compare to the Masoretic text to see how much has changed. And people tend to be really shocked at how accurate even the, the Masoretic text traditions that have been passed down have, have you know kept the Bible intact and stay true to uh, probably what was the original writings. So, you know, we're, we have 24 books there. We then have uh, Jerome getting commissioned in 382 to put together the Latin Vulgate for the Catholic Church. And he throws in a whole bunch of books. We have 72 books in there, including Tobit, Judith, the rest of Esther, the wisdom, Ecclesiasticus, Baruch, Song of the Three Children, Story of Susanna, the idol, Bell and the Dragon, and first and second Maccabees. These end up being included in in, uh, the Vulgate and it wasn't just Jerome who was writing it. Other people contributed too. And we'll talk about the Vulgate later when we talk about the New Testament. That one's also significant. We come to the late 1400s now, and pr- the printing press has arrived, and people, uh, the Jews are printing the Hebrew Bible. And it's becoming more accessible because what happened around the time of Jerome time, people sort of lost the ability to really read Hebrew. They're more focusing on the Greek and the Latin. But late 1400s, now there's new interest in Hebrew. And we have the University of Wittenberg that gets founded in uh, 1502. And one of their early professors starting off there is Martin Luther. And he joins them in 1508. And uh, he starts getting exposed to Latin. He's hanging out with Latin, sorry, to Hebrew. He's learning Hebrew. And, and then in 1524 or 1524-25, we have Jacob ben Hayyin Ibn Adonijah, who publishes the second Bomberg edition of the Bible, which that edition actually ends up being used by the King James Version. And, and we talk about how the King James Version is based on the Masoretic texts. That was really big deal for the King James version. To say we're going to go back to the Hebrew, because again, before that, the the Latin text and a lot of other Bible translations were being based on Greek translations of the Hebrew. So, you know, there's some question of well, how accurate is it? accurate is it? Um, and this is actually marking a departure from the Septuagint, which was what the Jews did to translate the Bible from Hebrew to Greek. So now we're going back all the way back. The Protestants are going all the way back to what they're hoping is the original Hebrew. Uh, And there's a whole interesting topic about that, whether we should ditch the the Septuagint or not, because Jesus and the apostles actually quote the Septuagint a whole lot more than they do the Hebrew text themselves. So there's, there's interesting nuances, uh, so 1534, we come to Luther, sorry, 1532, we come to Luther and he publishes the Old Testament. And he includes with it some extra non-canon books uh, that were in Greek, but he could find it in the Greek, but they weren't in the original Hebrew text. And this would be like Baruch, Maccabees, uh, all those I mentioned. So he includes them in his his Old Testament, but he does not list them in the Table of Contents. And Luther himself also didn't bother translating with him. He let other people do it. He really distinguished those books, saw them as different. Then in 1534, Luther does an extra, uh, a new edition of his Bible. And he puts those extra books into a separate section and he calls them Apocrypha. And he says, these books are not held equal to scripture, but are useful and good to read. And this is kind of one of the defining moments of the the emergence of the Apocrypha, thinking of them as, okay, these might be interesting books, but they're not the same as scripture. So Luther gets a lot of credit for that. And then we have like, um, from there, you know, a lot of the people like uh, William Tyndale and the authors of KJV are very much influenced by, by, uh, by luther and then some king James versions might have some apocrypha but again they're treated differently so for the most part we have starting around the 1500s protestants really embracing the okay there's 39 books of the old testament and when we say 39 books they're basically the same books as formed the 24 book hebrew tanakh which then goes way back so what about the new testament where does that come from? So we have 27 books today. And, and I'll some of them aren't technically books. There might be like letters and things like that. So these original manuscripts are floating around. We have little letters. We have all these different things. It was a big issue for the Christian church for centuries as to, okay, what's canon? What's scripture? What should we we respect versus what's just interesting or and, or what's just totally fraudulent? We come to the 3rd century so we're talking about like the 200s and there's evidence that the the church overall was fre- frequently quoting about 21 books and the ones that were more skipped were like Philemon, Hebrews, James, 2nd Peter, 3rd John and Jude. And we have some people think that or- origin of Alexandria may have used actually all 27 books that we have today. And then there is a Muratorian fragment That might date to around 200 AD, and that one has no 1st or 2nd Peter or James, but it has pretty much everything else that we use today for our New Testament. Then we come to 331 AD, and we have Constantine, Emperor Constantine who commissions 50 copies of the Bible. But still at this time, there's no official canon. So that really puts pressure on people to say, okay, we've got to make copies of the Bible. we got to copy Scripture, but what is Scripture for the New Testament? And then the first half of the 4th century, so this is before 350 AD, uh, we we believe that the Codex Vaticanus may have been created. And uh, and then it may it was changed throughout time too, so it, it, it's a complicated document. But it's it's missing 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, Philemon, and Revelation. And it, some people dispute whether it had the, some of the, what we call now the Apocrypha in it or not. We come to 367 AD, Athanasia, the Bishop of Alexandria. This is big. So this he's the Bishop of Alexandria, just like the Pope is the Bishop of Rome. He's the Bishop of Alexandria, one of the main patriarchs. And this was before the Great Schism. So this is when the the Bishop of Rome and all the other bishops will come together. And they're all supposedly equals, though the Pope was kind of like more equal than the others. And so this is a big Authoritary leader in the Church of, uh, of Christianity, three six seven eighty, AD, uh, he issues his 39th festival letter. So like every Easter, he issues some sort of proclamation. And in his letter, he identified the 27 books of, of the New Testament that we have today. And he's really credited for establishing the canon. And... Uh, you know, flash forward just, uh, you know, less than 20 years, you come to Pope Damasus I, the Bishop of Rome, who circulated a list of books that contain an identical New Testament canon that we have with the 27 books. And then the same Pope commissions Jerome, we talked about the Vulgate, he commissions Jerome to draft the Latin Vulgate, and that book, the Latin Vulgate, ends up with the 27 books of the New Testament. And then, Flash forward now to the 1500s and we have Erasmus who's putting together his translation of the New Testament. He's trying to find New Testament Greek manuscripts and trying to come up with what he considers, you know, the definitive Greek manuscript. And he's also drawing a lot from the Latin Vulgate too, at times. So uh, he creates the Novum Instructum Omni or New Teaching. he publishes the first edition in 1512. And then he publishes later like a second edition, third edition, keeps, you know, tweaking things, correcting errors. Uh, but big deal is he had the 27 books of the new Testament that we have today. And why do we care about Erasmus? Because his books was one of the main books that was used for the new King James version. And also William Tyndale is, is looking at these things. You have, uh, luther these this is all around the same time period and they're all now relying on this these new original manuscripts you know the hebrew the greek and it's like a renaissance on um, trying to find out and figure out what was the original bible what is the original wording and let's try to be as faithful as we can when we're trying to translate it now into german if it's luther or english if it's tyndale and the others and 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 something that should not be forgotten is Tyndale, his Bible often at times is just copied directly into the King James version. Like So much of the beautiful text we love uh, actually were coined and, and developed by Tyndale. He came up with the English term Passover even. So uh, this idea that is really, you know, dominated, controlled by, um, By Masons, again, it's just really undercut when we really look at the full context of the history going on and how there were many people that led to the the NKGV being influenced. And many times, again, they're just copying and pasting from earlier people like Tyndale. Uh, And interestingly, the the Catholic church in 1545 or or between 1545 and 1563 during the council of Trent declares that the Vulgate is officially the touchstone for determining the biblical Canon. And because the Vulgate has 27 books for the new Testament, the Catholic church is sort of, you know, locking in, okay, we agree 27 books for the new Testament. So fascinating history. Hope that's helpful. So we see that when it comes to the new Testament, uh, 27 is really attributed to uh, to Athenia, Athanasius, bishop of Alexandria, 367 A.D. And then it really gets um, the the Catholic Church reinforces that with the Vulgate um, during the the fourth sorry yeah the fourth century A.D. And then Latin, the Protestants also you know really seem to agree with that also going with like Erasmus, Luther, and these people. So not really much conflict at all when it comes to what should be in the book, uh, the New Testament. Christianity really has, a lot of it has centered on the 27 books. Now, if we go to the Orthodox traditions, there's going to be some more variants in there. That's where some people might say, oh, there's this book or that book. But uh, Western Christianity is very much united when it comes to the 27 books. Anything else? Uh, that's it. And then, yeah, Hebrews are pretty, or the Jews are pretty locked down with the 24 books that they have. So, Tina, you
0: No, I, I thought that was good. Just you know, I think that's really beautiful bringing in you know the reformers who I mean, they gave their lives for the word of God. You know, and these people laid down their lives, you know, put their lives on the line to preserve God's word and put it into you know the the common language so that people could read it for themselves. And not have it, you know, just spoon fed to them, whatever, you know, leadership was saying the Bible was saying, but rather saying, no, this is what the Bible says for itself. And, you know, I think that's really um, <laughs> what the, the enemy has not wanted. It was, you know, to, you know, the enemy doesn't want people having knowledge and having, you know, power in that way, knowing what God's word says for itself. And so, yeah, is there going to be attacks on the Bible? Yes. But were there faithful men of God like, you know, Tyndale and Martin Luther? You know, like you're saying, all these amazing, you know, reformers who you know did everything they could to give us God's word and um, you know, preserve it. Yes, so I'm really, yeah, I appreciate that you bringing that into to light as well.
2: Very cool, yeah,
0: um,
2: yeah, praise God. Yeah, praise God. Uh, we got uh, Sean. Sean M, great to hear from you, our friend. Yes. Hi, thanks for joining us, yeah, and
0: do we want to
2: know our live questions right yes yes so let's see i know
0: robert had one um about it,
2: this yeah i can answer that real quick okay <laughs> it says do you guys know any sabbath christian or maybe Wendy? You... Sure.
1: do you do you guys know any sabbath christian street preachers generally there are many baptist preachers but i prefer the other because you guys are very biblical thank you
2: (laughs) yeah thank you i guess i don't know what you mean by street preachers but i have heard of uh very biblical based people really out there on the streets like for example one in new york (laughs) i've been hearing some like go like on streets of manhattan uh preaching the word but if you're looking for a specific pastor someone you like to um watch more content with like let us know, and we're always happy to give suggestions. I think we all have our favorite people we like to tune into, Yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah, we can send those via like email or something. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, we'll send those directly to you, Robert. Um, EBR had a question about Daniel.
1: Yes, so EVR is asking, can you explain how the little horn changed times in daniel seven twenty five? So um, we do have a little bit of
0: this on our website. If you go to bibleask.org, uh, we have a whole library of Bible questions and their answers. Some of them are the video answers that we've given, as well as there's um, text answers where people have you know emailed and and written in questions, and we've written a response. So it's like a, a a blog basically of an answer to the Bible question. So there are a few of these we can put in the comment section below, but um, you know just a quick. If I could just sum it up in like a quick, like less than a minute answer is when you look at Daniel chapter seven, verse 25, it says, you know, this basically this beast would think to change times and laws. And so when you look at, you know, what is, what would be times and laws? Well, obviously this is um, Daniel chapter seven is talking about, you know, um, these nations and what would be the only law in the Bible that there would be, you know, a concern about changing it would be god's 10 commandment laws and what is the only law that has to do with time that would be the fourth commandment the seventh day sabbath so this beast is thinking to change times like changing this, this the day of the seventh day sabbath basically we've seen that happen where um uh, we see now that most of the world worships on the first day of the week which is sunday rather than the seventh day of the week which is the true sabbath um and also, um, it said laws plural. Um, this power also, you know, took away the uh, second commandment, which is says that you are not supposed to worship um, any idols or images, and um, basically just took the tenth commandment and split into two. So it was an attack on the commandments of God. And so that's that's a summary, I would say, of um, the changing of times and laws in Daniel chapter seven verse twenty five. Any other thoughts, Jay Windy, on that one? Or?
2: yeah, and it's a good, very short answer. And definitely, EVR, this is something we love to go in depth on. But the, to really understand it, to be you know, so like, yes, okay, I get it. I totally agree. You have to do a big deep dive. You know, exploring, you know, Daniel, looking at Revelation, seeing how they all come together. Mm-hmm. This really is um, a major event. And the Bible is really giving us a lot of warning about it. And it's, I think for a lot of people, it's shocking when they, I know people believe that Christianity is at its apex. It's never been better when in reality, the Bible is really warning. No, all of Christianity is going to be plunging into apostasy and God is having to call his people out of it. Just like, and it should be a shock, right? Because the Hebrews fell into apostasy. The Jews more or less fall fell into apostasy and, and even killed the Messiah. I mean, God's people just again and again keep falling into apostasy because Satan is actively working to to deceive and to you know fight God in every way, whether it's tarnishing the image of God in people or attacking God's laws, so and and making people think that they're doing it by being christian or or changing christianity so much that they think they're keeping god's laws making god happy when in fact not doing it so uh it, it really exposed this thing opens your eyes to really uh, a very important warning that the bible has so i'm glad that you asked and yeah definitely look into those bible studies if you have more questions we love to answer them and help you there uh it just i think definitely working it through yourself will really help a lot mm-hmm.
1: All right, so we have another question here from Robert.
2: Uh, Okay, so uh, I'll read this one because there's a a lot of Greek words there. So Robert says, I know God speaks of four different types of love. The love between couples, which is eros, is friendship, love, phileo, and a love, my family, storge, and just as love for the world is agape. Uh,
1: is the love between each of these these things
2: oh oh is the love between
1: is it love between oh, couples okay. eros is friendship love Phileo? is that how you say it so I've, I've
2: seen a lot of people trying to really maybe oversimplify things and and go with along the lines of what you're saying and and it is an oversimplification so to really understand these or begin to understand these this is a helpful we have seen it but really each of these different types of love that the greeks have have much deeper connotations um so yeah the bible is usually striving for the agape love and at least in the biblical context this is a love that's uh not so much love for the world but this is Maybe you could say like God's love for the world, and mm-hmm. it's a love yeah. that's self-sacrificing, that's putting others first. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the um, because there's so much caring for the interests of others. This is why the KJV often translates it as charity. You know, which I even feel like that word doesn't really uh, convey well what agape means. So, mm-hmm. so when we talk about love here on Bible As, I think usually we're talking about agape love, mm-hmm. and um, the, yeah, the friendship, love, phileo, that's usually what people say. It, it is, all of it has different meanings than just that. But uh, people always talk about Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. But it actually was named after a guy called Philip, <laughs> basically. So it wasn't so much they were so loving at first, but that's what the guy there wanted to name it. And when you have the story of, jesus talking to peter after peter had betrayed him and jesus says peter do you love me peter do you love me jesus says like peter do you agape me peter do you agape me and then finally jesus says okay peter do you phileo me (laughs) Mm. do you at least like me (laughs) kind of and and that's when really peter's heart broke he's like oh i see where jesus is going with this and so it The Bible really does get a bit more interesting when we dig deeper, understanding these different types. But uh, when it comes to love for a couple, I don't think... I could be wrong, Tina, but does Paul use Eros even? We talk about love between a husband I, and wife i don't think
0: so. i don't know i uh yeah i don't know off the top of my I almost head i feel
2: like it's more of an effatuation almost even it's someone that you might not be married to and you're just really driven by lust and passion it, i mean really it's a passion and in the context of marriage that's fine it's great but eros can even apply um, as you have there a couple even outside of marriage and it's not necessarily totally consistent with
0: mm-hmm. so
2: i will Yeah. So
0: just really quick, I'm going back to that story between um, Jesus and Peter in John chapter 21, where Jesus is saying, you know, Peter, do you love me? And he says, do you agape me? Which is like the love of God. And Peter responds and says, oh, you know, I phileo you. And so that was also part of the that's what I understood, too, is kind of what broke his heart was Jesus was saying, do you love me? Love me like the love of God. Love me. And Peter's saying, I flail you. He's putting distance, and then finally, yeah, Jesus gives him that. Do you do you do you even that? And then he's just like, oh, Jesus, I'm 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 messed up inside, and yeah, he's it breaks his heart. But, and I feel like I guess I that hit me so hard when I first heard that story or saw you know the different types of love that was in that context or in that conversation because I was like, how many times does God say, you know, you know, if you love me, keep my commandments? And we're like, yeah, God, we we like you. You're cool like, but we don't love God the way that we ought to because, and because, and honestly, it's because of our own Mm -hmm. sin and selfishness. Um, and it's not until we, you know, surrender our hearts fully that we can love God the way that we're supposed to, when we let go of self, we let go of sin. Um, and so I think that's kind of where Peter was at in that story as well.
2: But, um, oh that's interesting yeah i i didn't i never knew that it was peter that was always replying back yes i phileo you
0: yeah, i phileo you he was like jesus which is very very different
2: yeah. i he's like,
0: going i love you and i'm going yeah i like you too you're pretty cool and it's <laughs> like uh he's like i'm giving my heart to you i'm yeah i want you to marry me and i'm like yeah that's nice <laughs> it's just and i mean that's really and truly that's god's love for the world it's like god is always putting his heart out there saying i love you i want you i want to save you i want a deep committed relationship with you and we're just kind of like "Nah, i don't know i'm really interested in football or in these other things that we're distracted by we're not really giving god the love and attention Mm -hmm. he deserves so
1: anyway those are my thoughts
0: on that one
2: yeah love it hope we answered your question robert
1: and we did have a, one final comment here from EVR. Mm-hmm. If you want to say it says, this is what I thought related to time, but I heard that it referred to prophecy twelve one thousand two hundred and sixty day per year, preterism and futurism. Futurism. Interesting.
2: So I mean the 1260 days is related to this. I mean That's the true. 1260 days is referring to the the height of the reign of this little horn power when it's exercising its full authority and and just attacking god's true church and um you know enforcing this law that it you know enforcing this attempt to change the times and laws so Mm -hmm. that's what the 1260 days is referring to and and we definitely and and it's an important time frame this time frame is is referred to seven times in the bible so I believe it shows up four times in Revelation and I think three times in Daniel. Is that right, Tina? Or is it two and, two and four?
0: I don't know off the top of my head. I have to look at that.
2: So, yeah, I'm glad you figured out it's 1260 days, and which amounts to, you, uh, we believe in a day for a year principle, the 1260 years then, as, as you indicate there. And if you do apply day for a year principle, also like for the 2300 day prophecy, you actually get things that line up really well, such as you get when Jesus would have uh, been baptized, when he would have died and like the persecution of Stephen. and everything fits so well when you apply the day for the year prophecy
0: yeah exactly and then when you start reading daniel 8 that 2300 day prophecy you see um christ's work in the holy or in the in the heavenly sanctuary which is really really interesting if you ever want to look at that on bible ask or just ask us a question about that it's really really interesting mm-hmm. and just really quick note on uh evr you're looking at preterism ver- versus futurism and i would um yeah i definitely think this is not <laughs> not a preterist <laughs> view um that's definitely not something that we would agree with, because that's saying that the it would have been fulfilled in the first century. And that's definitely not true. Um, it was definitely an ongoing thing. It happened many years after. Um, but the times and laws that it's changing um, again, it's related to a law that not so much the time, which is, you know, the 1260 prophecy. Um, so it's a little bit different. And-
2: and we could prove it. if you look at Second Thessalonians 2, 3, this is Paul referring to the, you know, the this time that would come, this great time of apostasy. And he says, let me, no man deceive you by any means for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first that the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Mm-hmm. So he's saying like Jesus can't come yet because we still have to have this great apostasy, that, that, that Greek word there's apostasia. And Mm. so he says we can't have Jesus coming until we have this great apostasy, this 1260 day um, time period, which is just you're really talking about Christianity plunging into uh, into, yeah, again, apostasy, just like the Hebrews did, just like the Jews did. And now brother persecuting brother. It's so sad. Mm
0: -hmm. But that's really where you see, you know, in this fire, fiery time of trial is where you see, you know, the true character of true faithful Christians come out. You know, we saw that in the time of Daniel and his friends, you know, where they were like, you have to bow down and worship this image or it's literally a fiery furnace. And they said, we'd rather be thrown in the furnace and we'll be faithful. And, you know, I think that's really what God is looking for is um, people who will truly be faithful in the, in the face of the, you know, the greatest apostasy and the greatest, Um, trials and persecutions, because that's where you see the true test of character come out. Um, And that's where we saw Jesus and the true character of God come out as he went through the cross, which was the most horrible and difficult thing. I think any human could have ever experienced. And Jesus went through it because to demonstrate um, not only his love, but his character, um, which is love is that he will do anything to be with you and anything to save you. So, um, should we get our last question? I know we are close to out of time. Yes. Uh, what
2: about the Sabbath?
0: Um, or I was, I know we have more questions, or, or Robert. Or are we talking about the, the live ones?
1: <laughs> we got questions <laughs> everywhere.
2: Can... Uh, I mean, I think Robert is quick to answer. Okay,
1: let's do that. So Robert's question is God also speaks of loving him in four different ways with your mind, heart, soul, and strength. Do some people only love God with one of those, but not all. That sounds similar when you said people don't love God or how we say we do or not how God wants us to love him.
0: Oh yeah. I think, I mean, sorry, just to jump in there. Um, I think, you know, God wants us to love us in every way, shape, and form. And I think some people really do just love God with their mind. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they, they're like, yeah, God is all these things, but it, it's it's up here, but it's not a heart in their heart. Mm-hmm. Um, or people are like, oh, I love God. He's so beautiful. They like listening to sermons and all these things. But then it's like, and all your strength, you know, like they don't, but they're like, yeah, but I don't want to do anything about it. So, yeah, people can mm-hmm. definitely love God or like things about God or, you know, religion in a lot of different ways. Like I have a family member, I love them dearly. And they like to hear religious stuff, but they're like, yeah, I'm never going to practice that. I'm never going to do it. I'm like, Mm -hmm. that makes no sense to me. But, you know, there's definitely, you know, um, a fullness that we're supposed to come to the fullness of Christ. (laughs) And so when Christ came, he, you know, he thought about God, he love God in his heart. He obeyed God in his actions and his words, you know, and he did everything in his strength to, to obey his father. And so, I mean, that's, that's true um, Christianity. That's true following God is we love God in every way and every aspect of our being. So yeah, we're fully committed to him.
2: Yeah. And I think that last word you said there with all your being, I mean, that's exactly what's going on because what we translate as soul is actually being so mm-hmm. like the when God says in uh, Deuteronomy uh, this is first time it comes up like thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart with all thy soul with all thy might i mean that word that we yeah. translate soul is the word nefesh and right. in Genesis when it says God formed Adam he became yeah. a living nefesh so a living soul a living being so yeah everything our th- our totality all that we are um, yeah, mind, heart, strength, whatever it could be, like God's saying, like, love me with all of this.
1: Yeah, and I think He would not say to call He would not call out each of these separately if it weren't if it weren't a problem that oftentimes people are with one, but not all yeah. of them.
2: And I think it's yeah, it's being poetic to reinforce the point. Yeah, yeah. everything.
0: Yeah. yeah, and it kind of reminds me of a verse that actually God said in the book of Deuteronomy chapter five, I don't know if I can pull it up, but basically, you know, God's talking to Moses and, um, you know, the people are saying like, oh, we're going to commit to God. And, um, but God kind of already knows, um, that they're, (laughs) they're going to fall away. And he says, I think this is, um, Deuteronomy 529. God says, oh, that they're were such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always that it might be well with them and with their children forever. He knew that their heart was not with God, they, that their heart didn't long for God. They would say like, whatever the Lord says, we will do like with their words, with their minds, you know, they're like, yeah, we'll we'll do whatever we have to do. We'll, you know, we'll fulfill whatever we have to fulfill, but their heart wasn't in it. And we see, you know, the fruit of that, which was basically that they all fell away and turned you know, back into lives of sin.
2: Um, and, and, and that's, that's life. what's so huge. This is like, we just said, there's like so pivotal to understanding the new Testament, you know, yeah. which God foreshadowed. Well, I mean, it's very much in Deuteronomy, like we're talking about here. We see God really emphasizing in Jeremiah and it says, you know, that mm. I will, do, I'll, I'll enter a new covenant with you in which I will give you a new heart. And I will put my law into you, you know, with mm-hmm. my spirit. So God is really emphasizing that. Then we come to, to the new Testament. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Mm-hmm. And it's absolutely right. like and, and this is the core to to Christianity. We emphasize it so much because it makes everything so easy and, and reconciles the whole Bible. You know, yes, you're not going to be saved by works. You're not going to um, it's not by being perfect that God saves us. and but yet, yeah, why do we keep the law? It's because we love God and and it's by loving God, that we are sh- are manifesting our faith, proving we have real faith. Because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, end of the day, a faith without true love for God is not is, that's not the faith that the Bible's talking about. As James talks about, Satan knows God's exists, and yet he's raging war against God. It's mm-hmm. faith plus love that's the the real essence of of of, of establishing that life saving relationship with God.
0: Mm -hmm. yeah the bible says faith that works by love
2: yep exactly faith that works by love and when you're doing it out of love it's not work anymore and people talk about that when when you find a job that you love you never work another day of your life Mm -hmm. it's the same thing with christianity when you love god keeping his law is no longer work
0: amen that's very true and yeah. And it's just a a really beautiful thing to really have a relationship with God that's really that meaningful and that beautiful. And I think that's really what changes the world. Like I remember that's what changed me. That's what made me want to become a Christian. As I saw that love and a friend of mine, I was like, I want what she has. Like she's so she has this joy by doing good things like it didn't I didn't understand it, but I wanted it. And it, you know, it's a, it's an attractive thing. And like Christ says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself because his being lifted up is to, you know, love and um, it just draws something, you know, to him in the way that he loves us in, in all of his being. He, you know, he gave us, he showed us what love is in his self-sacrifice and it draws us to him and makes us want to be like that. So, yeah, I think that's really Mm -hmm. true. Well, I see we are out of time. I want to go into the next question so bad. I know we have so many more questions actually, but we'll have to wait till next week. But we want to thank everybody for joining us tonight. And thank you everybody who um, asked these wonderful questions live, as well as those that submitted them online on our website. So if you have a question that you would like us to um, formally feature on our weekly show, be sure to go to our website, bibleask.org forward slash live, and you can submit your questions there. And um, also, we want to make sure that if you are just uh, put it out there that if you've liked uh, what you've heard, please be sure to like and share our content. It always helps us out to just share God's word and be a blessing to others. So we just pray that you would, um, if you've been blessed, that you would bless others with our content. And so before we close, we wanted to remind everybody that we are live every Friday, 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. So we hope that you'll go ahead and join us again next week. Bring your friends and family as well. And so before we close, Jerry, what do you want to pray for us?
2: Sure, let's do it. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this. uh, Another week that we can get together and dig into your word and explore the explore these wonderful questions that everybody's submitting. We thank you for each person who's tuned in. We pray a special blessing for each of them and help us all to unite in your spirit into truth and to walk your way of love lord that we can show the world what you really are like and this lord we pray in, in the name of your son jesus amen
0: amen thank you so much for that and we hope to see everybody again next week at 6 p.m pacific standard time good night, everybody god bless you bye, bye.